Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So our guest today is Shadi Hammett, who is a fellow at the Brookings Institution and is the author of uh, several books and also the co-host of the Wisdom of Crowds podcast. Uh, so first off, uh, Shadi, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Great. So the topic that we're going to discuss today is uh, recently... In Harper's, there was a open letter issued uh, on the general subject of free speech and tolerance for divergent viewpoints, and I, I think there were a hundred and fifty odd signatories to the letter. I'm not going to read them all, but just to give kind of a sampling for our audience of you know. Who was on this thing? Uh, the, the signatories included uh, David Brooks, Michelle Goldberg, Noam Chomsky, Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, J.K. Rowling, uh, Wynton Marsalis, the musician, uh, Matty Glacius, Deidre McCloskey, John MacArthur, the uh, uh, religious figure, Gloria Steinem, and John McWhorter, lot, lot, lots of other folks. Uh, and I believe it was reported that, um, and you, this <laughs> distinguished uh, company, I believe, I believe it was reported that the list was spearheaded by uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, I think. Um, yep. It might have been a, a group effort. So uh, this uh, yeah, th- this has gotten a lot of attention and some controversy. Uh, we'd like to talk a little bit about it, but why don't you, you know, maybe just you could just summarize the contents of the letter and, and why you thought it was important for you to sign. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, first of all, um, you know, what a week. I mean, the the letter has been more consuming than I thought it would be. And and now it's just referred to, at least online, as the letter in, in capital and, in, you know, capitalized. So it's become this thing that everyone, at least on Twitter, seems to be aware of, which is kind of cool for an open letter. I mean, the complaint about open letters is that they're not effective. They're kind of lame. People don't pay attention to them, but people have definitely paid attention to this one. And that that's, that's certainly good overall, but then there's obviously um, some negatives that comes along with that. Um, so, you know, in terms of the letter, um, the idea, it's basically a response to uh, this somewhat odd, tense, and charged moment that we're in. And I think that for a lot of us signatories, there was a sense of discomfort over the past few weeks that just kept on building that something fundamental was shifting in the way people engage in debate and discourse. Cancel culture, to use the phrase, was was gaining ground and the sort of woke maximalism of a certain crowd, um, you know, was getting a little bit out of hand. And now obviously that's not the most important thing in the world. There's, there's bigger issues, but it's possible to, to think several things are important at once. And we thought this was sufficiently important 
um, to kind of um, go out there and, and say something and try to rally su- support behind a statement of purpose, which is that, um, you know, cancel culture is problematic. Um, people's livelihoods have been have been damaged. People have lost their their jobs. Um, but also that there's a chill on free speech um, in the sense that people, a growing number of people don't feel comfortable saying what they really think on sensitive issues around race and identity. Now, that, now, that might be good if you're a white supremacist. Um, those people should not be part of the conversation. We shouldn't relitigate things that have been settled in, in, in the public conversation. But what's striking is that things that many many of us on, on the left um, would have said just two years ago and people people would have been like, oh, that's that's a boring, normal idea. Who cares? Two years later, it's now um, cancel worthy. I mean, that's that's part of the problem with this endless progressivism is that the standards are always shifting. And, um, you know, you should be able to say vaguely controversial things as long as they're within as long as you're not being outwardly racist or as long as you're not a white supremacist or whatever. But the problem is now debate debate is being narrowed where my position has always been that um, everyone should be part of the public conversation with just a few exceptions. People who we most the vast majority of us can agree are terrible, bad, evil outside of those very rare cases, which might be one to two percent of the population. As long as you're an American, you should be part of the American debate. Um, now, the woke folks, they they want to narrow that range of discourse to say, I don't know, 40 percent of the population and then the rest of the 60 percent are deplorables. And anyone who just kind of goes outside what they consider to be acceptable discourse, those people have to be shunned, so on and so forth. So that's the basic context. And I think what um, what I'm happy to see happening with this letter is that it was, it was uh, to use, I'm not sure if this is the right language, but a coordinated show of force where um, a large number of people, many of them quite prominent, many of them leading lights on, uh, especially, um, uh, on the on the left and center left, and that was by design that we didn't really have um, many conservatives. I think when it comes down to it, and th- this wasn't really in the letter, but it's my interpretation, is that this is an intramural fight on the left, and that's the audience we were speaking to. We're trying to convince people on our side of the spectrum, for the most part, that there's another way of doing this. Things have gotten out of hand. And that enough is enough, really. What I was going to say, I, I think the the most amusing uh, response I think I saw from this was, uh, I believe it was Parker Malloy that basically responded that nobody that signed this had actually faced cancel culture themselves. And you have Salman Rushdie as a as one of the signatories. That his whole controversy in the past is, is just far enough back that it might actually worth bear repeating. Could you sort of walk us through or just give us a reminder on exactly the the type of much, much harsher than cancel culture? What was what was the controversy with Salman Rushdie and the Satanic Verses and what what was his experience? Yeah. So after he publishes his Satanic Verses, um, the Iranian regime issued a fatwa against him 
basically a bounty on his head, if you want to, if you want to use that term, um, which meant that his life was in danger. So he, you know, he had to basically stop being public for a while and, um, his safety was in question. There was a real, there was a real risk of him being harmed and, um, that changed his life. And, um, you know, and, and so I guess like, you know, that, that wasn't cancel culture in the sense that that term didn't exist. But if you want to think about how some of these things have played out in the past, you can't ignore the Salman Rushdie example. And it shows just how historically illiterate some of these people are. And, and Noam Chomsky, there have been attempts to quote unquote cancel Noam Chomsky. I mean, the, the list goes on. Um, and that's not even really the point, because even if you take the premise that the signatories were quote unquote privileged in the sense that, we uh, most of us are at least sufficiently financially and professionally secure. There's a reason for that, because the people who aren't financially and professionally secure aren't going to sign a letter like that because of the risk to their reputation or professional repercussions. So in some sense, the letter is meant to send a message to people that, hey, a lot of you are afraid to say what you really think. Think about young graduate students or people who are up for tenure in a year or two. Those are people who, if they say something um, vaguely controversial and even not even vaguely controversial on race or identity, that that could really affect their career trajectory. So when people were saying, oh, look at all these privileged people, it was it was dumb, first of all, that obviously this is a self-selecting group. Um, and almost by definition, uh, that's why we were comfortable signing because we felt that we could do that. And we made the calculated risk that we could have, we could afford to, to take that action. Um, many people didn't have that luxury. And we know of, um, a number of cases of, of people that were reached out to, to join the letter who said, who said straight up that they were afraid to sign. Yeah, it did seem, I mean, aside from the historical ignorance involved there was something weird about that line of criticism which i i saw more than just that one case which is normally you don't the fact that someone is doing something not out of direct self-interest is normally not considered a a grounds of criticism you know (laughs) i I would think that if 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 the the authors of the that letter had signed a a letter condemning uh the treatment of the Uyghurs by the Chinese Communist Party, for example, I don't think anyone would say, well, none of these people have actually ever been persecuted by the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> it's it's kind, of, kind of weird. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I don't even know what to say because you're, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, the criticisms that were leveled are, I mean, so many of them were just were just shallow and, and ad hominem. And oftentimes the criticism wasn't even about the content of the letter. And, you know, after a while seeing, seeing these criticisms on Twitter, I was like, wait, are they never going to reference the letter in question? So much of it was about dislike of particular signatories and, you know, JK Rowling in particular, but also a number of others. And, and, you know, it, it's remarkable to me that that can be the issue when obviously we want to have a big tent here. So if there's 153 signatories, some of them are going to be controversial. And this idea of guilt by association, because so almost this idea that 
if I sign a letter that JK Rowling also signs, I buy like some kind of like osmosis process. I absorb her ideas on trans rights and therefore I'm transphobic. Like that, that is some of the discourse that's going on here. So, you know, at some point, at some point, it's hard for me as someone who doesn't really relate to this woke moment. Sometimes I feel like I'm in my own, like some of us are in a parallel universe and these woke folks, they're operating by a different set of rules and standards of discourse that are anathema to my core being. And maybe some of it's generational. I mean, when I was coming up in, in university in the early 2000s, I just, this was not, this was not how we debated. This is not how we discuss things. And there's a lot of, a lot has been written about safetyism and how that really came to the fore um, in the 2010s. So if you came up in college during that period, there was just, I guess, a different way of looking at these things. And of course, um, uh, Greg Lukianoff and, and John Haidt, their, their book, The um, uh, the Coddling of the American Mind, gets at a lot of this. And it's quite important for that reason. So some of it might be generational, but it goes well beyond that because I think more and more people are buying into this because they see which way the wind is blowing. And out of self-interest, if you're thinking about your career prospects right now and you're on the left or left of center, your smart move is to be careful about what you say uh, about anything having to do with, with race. Um, and that's unfortunate because we should be having a vigorous conversation about how to address what are real systemic issues. I mean, so many, most of us who signed the letter, we think that criminal justice reform should be like a, a, a number one or at least top five priority in terms of our, our national agenda. Police abuse, police reform, police brutality, all these things are things that we think have to be addressed. Part of the problem is... Um, woke politics is so much about symbolism and so much energy is directed towards that, that you start to wonder whether anyone will have energy to actually have to commit themselves to institutional reform. That takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of political organization. And when so much of the energy is being displaced onto like silly issues, um, you know, that's an issue. So the, the very people who claim to be um, outspoken in support of ending these very bad things in our country, I would argue that they're undermining their very cause. And um, anyway, yeah. So let me ask about that because you know traditionally, so if you had if you had published the more or less exact same letter uh, with the same set of signatories, give or take. Uh, 15 years ago or 25 years ago or even 50 years ago, uh, I don't think it would have been that surprising because for a long time, support for freedom of speech, uh, diversity of thought, uh, the right to dissent, these were things that are you know associated with the left, right? Uh, yeah. To, to, their, to the extent that they were associated with one side of the political uh, spectrum. Obviously, there were a, a lot of folks on the right who supported free speech too. But you know, uh, the, if you if you were to think of uh, if if you were to come up with uh, 
an example where someone was, you know, at a at a meeting and got up and gave some rousing speech about the right to disagree and so on and so forth. You would expect them to be left of center, right? Um, yeah. And that, at some point, perhaps within the last 10 years almost, it does seem that the situation is kind of flipped where now, uh, I mean, I have, I have seen it said uh, by certain people that uh, support for free speech is white supremacist, right? Or it, you know, defending free speech, uh, you know, entrenches uh, the powerful and silences marginalized voices, uh, etc. What happened there? What do you what do you think explains that reversal? Yeah, well, so that's a really good point to raise because you know, uh, as someone who came of age in the the, the shadow of nine eleven. And as someone who was, um, I mean, I'm, I'm still on the left now, uh, although when I was in undergrad, I would say I was more on like the pseudo socialist, more kind of radical left side, in part because like a lot of us just went through that phase reading Chomsky and all that stuff. And, um, and that was, of course, and then the, the Iraq war happened um, two years into my, my undergrad education. So I was involved in that. Um, and so cancel culture was a thing then insofar as it was coming from the right. And if you weren't sufficiently patriotic or you were vocal against the Patriot Act at the time, um, or you said something, you know, about that America should look inward about how um, it, it, American po- some U.S. policies have fueled radicalization in the Middle East, things like that, that now are kind of normal at the time. Um, would be seen as very controversial. And there were a number of professors who were, you know, hassled for reasons. And also Israel-Palestine, too. Um, so uh, on a, v- a variety of Middle East issues. Um, so, you know, um, so fr- from my standpoint, in those formative years of my life, it was like, hey, dissent is really important from this uniform rush to war and this disregard for civil liberties, where if I recall only one senator, I think it was Bernie Sanders, who um, voted against uh, the Patriot Act um, after the September 11th attacks. So, yeah, if you're thinking about it from that and and that sounds like ancient history, even now I'm trying to like summon my memory of that context. And it sounds like I'm talking about a different universe. And, you know, if you didn't if you didn't go through that, then you might have no idea what I'm talking about. And I fear that many of my, um, it's weird also to talk about my younger counterparts on the left, considering that I am still relatively young. I'm 36, but, uh, I guess it's just, uh, the sign of the times, I suppose. Um, uh, in my, so speaking from personal experience, there is no one older than uh, a person who is five years older than his colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but I think the other the other part of it too is there's a sense the this kind of woke left is now in ascendance. And one might even say that they are culturally dominant to one degree or another in mainstream cultural institutions. Of course, they don't really have political power, but cultural power is important. And the fact that they've been gaining ground in institutions like the New York Times and other mainstream outlets, 
um, that means that they're going to be less tolerant of dissent because at at, at that point, dissent dissent is going to be expressed uh, towards them. I mean, they're the ones who who have more control over discourse and public debate, and those who disagree now are on the other side. So in that sense, there has been a changing of the guard. And let's be honest, I mean, um, everyone, everyone, even if they don't realize it, cares about power. Everyone um, wants to dominate. They want their side to be um, at least somewhat more dominating than the other sides. So I think that's part of what's going on here. So it's worth looking at this letter debate as partly about um, an internal power struggle on the, within the left, on the left, and this new, this pre, what what would have been seen as a counter elite just two or three years ago, they're now becoming the elite, and they see this moment as a way to basically um, that weaponize this moment to get rid of their um, their some of their opponents or the people they disagree with. So it's useful to say some of this is about ideology, some of this is about ideas, but some of it's also the classic human struggle um, for power. Um, I will say, though, that there is one difference, and I've just been thinking about this. Um, it's it's a bit oversimplified, but when I think about um, woke lefties who I disagree with, I'm never thinking to myself or t- with my friends, like, hmm, I wonder how we can get rid of them in mainstream institutions. We just take that as a given that there are people who have these views and that's fine. Um, There should be people who express views like that in any mainstream left, center left institution. And we don't think we don't think anything of it there. To my knowledge, it's not very common for for those of us um, on the non-woke side to be like, oh, we want to cancel those woke people and kind of shame them out of our institutions. No, but on the other hand, but it's it's asymmetric in the sense that that's not how they see us. They literally, many of them, not all of them, but many of them literally want to get rid of us. Um, and they see this as a zero-sum battle. And that to me suggests that there's something, it's a little bit of an, it's a weird fight in that respect because they see the fight in fundamentally different terms than we see it. We just want to, we're like, hey, you guys should be at the New York Times. Um, non-woke people should be at the New York Times. Great. And don't attack each other in public on Twitter and shame your colleagues. But this idea also of if you have a disagreement with a colleague, someone you literally work with, that you shame them on Twitter to basically to make them think twice about speaking out about what they think, which is what happened to um, in in the kind of intra-Vox battle where Matt Iglesias, who's at Vox, signed the letter. And then there was a lot of public shaming of him, like, oh, how could Matt do this from other Vox employees? If you, do, if you don't like the fact that Matt um, signed the letter, that's fine. Tell him that and express that privately in your Slack channels or whatever. There's, there's no reason for that to be um, broadcast for public consumption because that's precisely what leads to a chill in speech. Right. And I, I believe uh, not only with their criticism, but uh, one of his coworkers actually sent a letter to Vox about it. Uh, yeah. Also, you know, tweeted it. Um, uh, particularly, I, I think that had to do with the, specifically with the trans issue. 
Uh, although that's, I mean, that's a case that has to do specifically with the letter, but I can think of several other examples of that uh, as well with Lee Fang, uh, the intercept, uh, very similar situation, uh, other things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, like, exactly. So I can't imagine myself if I was angry at um, anyone I work with or anyone I write with at the Atlantic, let's say, that I would, I, I would tweet about it just it's so weird to me and i i just what has to happen to someone like in their own head to think that's a good idea i mean what what happened what was done to lee fang i i i found that incredible um and i was shocked um you just don't there's just certain things that you don't do um but now now apparently it's okay to do them so you know at some point you have to say look this has gotten out of hand now Look, you know, at the same time, do I get it when people say, well, oh, the, there's been a, a kind of liberal elite that's been dominating certain publications historically. And look, that hasn't worked and there has to be a new approach. I'm actually sympathetic to some of that, that, you know, there has been a failure of of elite politics in America. I mean, we won't, when we want to understand the rise of Donald Trump, I tend to see Donald Trump as a symptom of broader dysfunction in our society. And that's why I'm more, when I, when I think about why people voted for Donald Trump, I don't tend to see them as evil or irredeemably racist because I kind of get why some people were like, Hey, you know, um, you know, fuck the system or whatever it might be. Um, and people who just have no hope and, and, and see all elites as, as bringing the country to, to, uh, towards disaster. So then they vote for the opposite of that, whatever. So, you know, I, I am there, there, and, and actually, I mean, David Brooks had a, a really good column today, in the New York times. And I, and I chuckle because I'm somewhat biased because he quoted me in it, but putting that, <laughs> but putting the fact that he quoted me aside, I think it's a really good piece because he's saying that um, liberalism is not enough calls to, calls for more free speech are not enough. That's part of a bigger puzzle, but there's a bigger, there's a bigger and more foundational dysfunction in American society. And some of it has to do with alienation, loneliness, the fact that people don't know how to debate. They don't know how to accept difference, but also he talks about um, the need for personalism, which is basically this, uh, you know, the, the idea that, people shouldn't be judged based on immutable characteristics. So the fact that I am Arab and Muslim, a person of color, a brown person, I don't like it that people might look at me and assume things about me solely because of one of those two or three identities. I'm an individual. I have distinctive opinions and I am not responsible to some collective. I don't have to take a Muslim position on something. I am a person who is also, and it's, for me, some of it has to do with, um, and I've been thinking about like, why is, why is wokeism so anathema to me? I think part of it is, you know, I'm not the most religious person in the world, but I am a believer. And, um, you know, as a Muslim, as a monotheist, I, the idea of an individual being responsible ultimately in the ultimate sense only, only in the eyes of God, 
that is really important, I think. And I, I would much rather be seen as accountable to, to a creator than accountable to my group identity. And who's who's even and, and who decides what the group identity even is and why should I be subject to that, um, you know, so so on and so forth. So I think that's really important here is and this is where I think a lot of the criticism of, of the letter, it's like there's it's almost like people are angry that a lot of people of color signed the letter. They're like almost like almost like we're betraying our our race or our people or our community. And that is really um, goes against everything I believe about human worth, human dignity, the role of the individual. No, I mean, um, so, but that's that's becoming more and more controversial now to emphasize the individual as fundamental is now a controversial opinion. Well, I was, I was going to say you 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 commented on your faith, and I believe I've seen you on Twitter commenting a little bit about. Uh, the the history of the black community and the black church, and then sort of posing the question of, you know, can the black church, if you want to call it the black church, can the black church um, be part of the healing at this moment of the the racial animosities? Um, I, I saw that you raised the question. I didn't stick around long enough to see if you answered it. Uh, would you yeah. <laughs> Would you care to answer it here? <laughs> sure, sure. So that that came out of. Um a recent podcast episode that we did on wisdom of crowds where we brought on uh, Robert Nicholson, who is the um, president of the Philos project, which is a Christian organization that does dialogue and engagement, usually in conflict areas abroad, but they're trying to use some of that skill set to address racial conflict here in the U S. So they just um, recently organized a trip where they brought together, I think it was around um, 10 white Christians and 10 black Christians and, you know, just kind of hung out and they tried to, like, talk to each other and understand each other's point of view and some of that. And but it's not like the kind of lovey dovey stuff. It's about like, hey, let's talk about deep difference and let's talk about anger, particularly from the black community towards their um, white Christian counterparts. But, you know, the, a, a really interesting point that Robert made and that I'm very sympathetic to, um, which is that, um Protestant Christianity offers a way forward because um, of the role that the black church has played historically and um, and being a vehicle for civil rights and for racial equality. And there's a common language there because if you have white Protestants and particularly including white evangelicals, um, they might not be able to speak the same language in terms of their experiences on race and even their experiences in terms of party politics, most white evangelicals are are Republicans or conservative, and most black Christians are are Democrats. But the one thing they can do is this sort of transracial or cross-racial conversation around um, Protestant Christianity in particular, but Christianity more generally. That seems compelling to me, and especially at a time when um, I don't think religion really has figured much in the conversation after after the murder of George Floyd, in part because um, a lot of a lot of folks on the social justice side of things are not particularly religious. And, you know, one thing I lament a little bit as a de as a Democrat and as someone on the left side of the spectrum 
is that we just don't have um, a whole lot of religious people. I don't even, they don't even have to be like really religious or practicing or anything, but people who just have a basic respect for the role religion can play in public life. I'm biased in that because that's literally what I work on, the role of religion in public life and specifically Islam. So, um, but that said, I, I've also come to a deeper appreciation around the role that Christianity has played in, in, our, in our country's history and that it, until really recently, just really um, the last few years or the last decade, there was a certain sense that there was a common Christian culture that even democratic politicians would pay tribute to. Um, and there was something unifying about that. And I think in losing that, we've lost an ability to talk to each other because not only do we have a party divide between Republicans and Democrats, but there, there's a secular religious divide that's overlaid on top of that. You, you actually remind me of a, um, a very vivid moment that I had in college. And I don't think I've told this story before here, um, but I was in an American history class and I had just written, uh, had just read some Thomas Sowell. And of course, I you know, try to incorporate it quickly into a, like a, an essay exam and explaining the civil rights movement. Civil rights movement was a, a moment where there was a common moral, uh, common moral premise, which I think was Sowell's term between the northern white Christian people and, and the southern black Christians. Uh, the, the professor did, wouldn't have any of that. I just remember that the essay getting marked up with a lot of red. Ink, but, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can imagine. Just a, walk, just a walk down memory lane for me. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, I think the moral premises have changed quite a bit. I mean, the universalism of the civil rights movement, at least as embodied by uh, Martin Luther King, not necessarily Malcolm X, but still like that's, that's a, that's a main through line in a lot of the work of, of the sixties. And that said, I mean, were there limitations to that universalist approach? Yes. And I think that part of what happened is that, um, you know, Barack Obama comes and talks about a post-racial post-ideological society. And there's all this optimism that this is the natural endpoint of the civil rights struggle, but then we realize that that only takes you so far. So again, when, when I try to be, you know, charitable to my, uh, the people who don't like me or disagree with me, that's where I see that they have something to go on, that something clearly did not work. And this kind of racial liberalism, if you want to call it that, did not end up producing the results we thought it could produce. So we, we have reached an impasse. So I think at, at some level, even I can like I can agree that there has to be something else um, that goes beyond what was the the moral premises of the the '60s and the civil rights struggle. But that said, there is still something really helpful and useful about seeing things in universalist terms, and also trying to get people who might not otherwise be predisposed to your message, and not to see them as enemies, but to see them as people that you want to get on your side. So there's also something very alienating about, about this moment where there isn't even a pretense of trying to convince your ideological opponents. You, mm -hmm. you just, you assume that they're bad and you say, well, we have to defeat you. You are bad. And there has to be some kind of final victory where either one of us wins. That, that is so contrary to how I view Politics, in part, I have to say that because of my background and because of my time uh, living in the Middle East in, in very tense and, and even violent moment during the Arab Spring, 
um, and my, my research and field work around some of these issues, I saw what happens when societies where one side seeks final victory over the other because there's a foundational ideological divide. And we know, we know from other regions of the world that it can be very, very scary and dangerous and violent. I mean, um, I don't think that'll happen in our case, at least not at the level of mass violence, but we are, we are, um, we're playing with something that it, we should be very careful about here. And that's why um, you know, I've been very outspoken about how we talk about um, tr Trump supporters, which I think to me is such an obvious thing that if 45% of the country or 40 or whatever it is, um, support this man who I think is a very, you know, a very bad person and moral and all that, um, I can, I, I think that I'm still able to separate between um, the man Donald Trump and the people who support him. And this is also, I think there's something to be said about the Christian approach to this, to oversimplify. You, you make a distinction between the sin and the sinner, that there's a kind of inherent uh, moral worth to every human being. And there are reasons that people stick to bad ideas. Psychologically, it, there's there's a lot of empirical work on this. I mean, if I was, if I was born as someone who didn't look like me, um, let's say in, I don't know, like... Uh, Louisiana or Mississippi, and I grew up in a conservative family and all that, chances are I would end up voting for Trump. We just know that, that the vast majority of, conserv of, of uh, conservative whites in Louisiana or Mississippi or in, in, that, in, in the South voted for Donald Trump. It's, it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of social context here. There's pressure from your surroundings. If that is what you hear for a very long period of time, and you see it in this kind of tribal sense, you know, it is understandable that you would vote a particular way. We might wish it were otherwise, but people have to, I think, keep in mind that there's a web of social interaction that leads us to support one thing over another. Um, and that doesn't make the person evil. My view on Trump support among conservatives is a bit nuanced. And, and I think of a, an expression that I learned when I was in Middle Eastern history studies. And I think it was something like this, that me against my brother, my brother and I against my cousin, my cousin and I against the world. And I think if you look at polls about Trump, if it's a viewpoint of you know, Trump versus Biden or generic Democrat, Republicans are just going to rally around Trump. But then you actually go talk with conservatives behind closed doors. And it's a very different type of conversation. So, uh, you know, my viewpoint on what conservatives really think sort of apart from Trump is that it's 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 a lot more nuanced than what we're, we're led to believe in the media. Exactly. And I think, you know, as you're saying, many of them would prefer not to vote for Trump. But when you have a binary choice and if, let's say, things like uh, abortion and su Supreme Court justices are are fundamental to you, because let's say you consider abortion to be a non-negotiable. Everyone has different non-negotiables. And this is I, I you know, I struggle sometimes to explain this to, to uh, liberal and, Demo and democratic friends um, that basically you have non-negotiables on, on racism, as you should. I think that that should be a position on the left, that that is non-negotiable. If you, if you define racism as it's historically been defined, not these new definitions where like everything is racism. But you also have to understand that the conservatives sometimes have non-negotiables too. And one of them, and I know this from 
many of my conservative and especially evangelical friends, and they've helped me understand this more, that abortion is not something that they are able in, in the eyes of God, in terms of their own personal relationship with their creator, to to compromise on. So it's understandable that if they prioritize that, that's their single issue or their number one issue um, is abortion. It's understandable that they wouldn't be able to to vote for like Hillary Clinton, for example, or even maybe Joe Biden. Um, and uh, the fact that people people on the left can't actually understand that even though it seems somewhat logical to me, if you accept the starting premise that abortion is tantamount to murder. Now, you don't have to accept that premise, but if you understand someone else's moral premise and that's how they view things because of deeply held convictions, then it follows that they would not be able to vote for someone who actively supports abortion rights, right? Correct. Uh, So just uh, to close out, you... You mentioned your podcast, The Wisdom of Crowds. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what you are hoping to achieve with this podcast. Yeah, so we started um, about a year ago, but we really only started like ramping up production and and trying to do, trying to do weekly episodes somewhat recently. And we're getting more serious about it in part because um, we feel this is the right time for that. And I'll get back to that in a moment. But the way it started, basically, it's kind of a funny story. Um, Demir Marushik, my co-host and I, um, we were on a trip in Israel. It was a, st- a study trip on religion and nationalism that was organized by the Philos Project, the, the organization I mentioned earlier. And um, we were just getting in these debates about culture, politics, religion, and nationalism. So everything that has to do with identity and belief. And we got in these like all over the place debates on, on, on the bus with the other participants. And then Megan McArdle, columnist for the Washington Post, she was like, hey guys, like you're debating all the time on the bus. You guys should just start a podcast where you do this. And then we just kind of laughed, but then we're like, hmm, maybe that's a good idea. So that's like sort of the origin story. So we really see ourselves as like focusing on a a certain set of cultural identity and religious issues. But also what I would say is distinctive is that it's unscripted and we just pretty much hang out in Demir's living room. Sometimes we have guests, but most of the time so far we haven't had guests. So sometimes just me and Demir will maybe come up with one topic, but we won't just like, so progress and that'll be the prompt, but we won't discuss anything with each other before that. And we'll just kind of shoot the shit and talk and part of what we wanted to do was that it's like two friends trying to work out why they believe what they believe in real time. Um, and we, we, we try to get listeners like with us to kind of like to walk them through our thought process. And Demir and I do, do disagree on certain things and we try to figure out why we disagree. I mean, that's very interesting to us. So I'm more of an interventionist on foreign policy He's very skeptical of of the uh, of the role of values, uh, democracy promotion, inter, um, humanitarian intervention. So let's talk that through and discuss that. So that's sort of like the that's sort of the idea. And but I, I'll also say because it relates to the letter, we also started a newsletter also called Wisdom of Crowds, which is a spinoff from the podcast. The reason that we're doing a lot of this stuff now is because we feel that. There's a need for alternative venues for debate that Twitter and social media more generally just doesn't work for the kind of 
um, good faith argumentation that you need on difficult topics. So we almost see ourselves as trying to build an alternative community that's heterodox, but but is like-minded in the sense that everyone shares the premise that you disagree with people, but you listen to what they're saying and you have a kind of you have a kind of appreciation, perhaps even love of ideological combat, that there's a certain kind of pleasure that comes from wrestling with ideas. And that's what Demir and I try to do in, in, in both the newsletter and the podcast. And if, if we can build a larger community around that, um, that's part of what we want to do. And I think a lot of people are thinking now about what are the alternative venues that, that we can do this through. And that's why I think podcasts in some sense are the new Twitter that a lot of people are stepping back. They, they, everyone stays on Twitter to see what's going on, but maybe they, they're not comfortable engaging as much anymore. And they're, they're relying more on podcasts that they feel they have a personal connection to. And maybe you guys have felt the, the same with your podcast. But I think that this is, um, that to me is, is where, a lot, where I think a lot of us are going to have to think about going because something isn't working with the way we do debate and argumentation right now. All right. Well, be sure, everyone, to check that out. And uh, Shadi, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.